Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins. And today I'm here with Chandler Vinoy. Hey, hey. Now, before you go, I just have to let everybody know this is the first time you've had to do the intro twice. It is, yeah. I have a pretty easy intro. You do? So That's the first time. You've been yeah, killing like it up until now. Yeah, 500 episodes or so. <laughs> well, and Daniel did a lot of the intros, too. Sure. And Eric did some, and so did Barnabas. So... Congratulations. You seem to be on the podcast quite a bit, Chandler. Hey, look at that. You're you're like slipping right into co-host. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe when you get me like a title on my desk, it says co-host. Like, we'll yeah. see. Maybe that's a All right. Well, I've never even been on the Unseen podcast, so. Yes, you have with Brad Lominick for like three minutes. Okay. We'll have you on as a guest. How about that? Uh, strangely, we recorded it and those files were missing or destroyed. I'm True. not sure. I'm not sure what happened there. Or we'll re-record it. <laughs> it's a conspiracy. <laughs> All right. Uh, today we have a, a new friend for me. Although we uh, we we are sure that we've met in person, we just don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that is uh, Justin Murph. Who <clears throat> I could like. I don't know how to describe you, man. Like when I think <laughs> of your bio, it is it is all over the place. You're a man of mystery, and uh, I'm I'm not sure if you're not, you know, into espionage or something. I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, currently you're the director of uh, the MENA initiative, which stands for Middle East North Africa, if I remember correctly. And, and talk a little bit about what uh, what you're currently doing, and then I may ask you some questions about your past. Yeah, absolutely. So great to be on with you guys. Uh, so the MENA Collective cool. was created to essentially raise awareness and tell the great stories of ministry partners that we have in the Middle East, North Africa. So we work in 22 countries all across North Africa, the Middle East, Turkey, and Pakistan. And what a few of my friends and I, we got together a couple years ago and we, we realized, you know what, first of all, most people in the West have no idea the deep, rich history of the church that actually exists in the Middle East and that that uh, so much of our theology, so much of our understanding, even one of the gospel writers was a North African, Mark, who was from modern day Libya. Um, you know, that kind of was a mind blow for me. I didn't really realize that. But then you you begin to learn more about our, our spiritual family tree roots and see, you know, the center of Christian learning was in Egypt and modern day Tunisia well before it was ever in Rome. And yet for 2000 years, and despite Islamic conquests and terrorism and all the other things that have happened, uh, there's been a church that has been faithful to carry the light of Christ and the gospel for 2000 years. And they're still there and they're growing. And that's been the most exciting thing is to see just how they're growing. And so we really kind of pulled together and said, what if we could create a, a ministry and an organization that tells their stories? that champions those ministries. There's no shortage of great stories coming out of the Middle East, but there is a shortage of really effective storytellers. So we wanted to be that storyteller. And then in doing so, really raise awareness and hopefully raise some support for these amazing ministry partners that are doing just tremendous work there in really one of the most difficult uh, and hard to reach places of the earth. So, so that's what we get to do. That's amazing. So, so, 
From what I know of your past, you have been a missionary, you've been on church staff, you've had a, uh, a major leadership role at in Christian broadcasting. Um, there's, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a <laughs> Not couple many other things, things you haven't done. No, no, no. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think what's going to be interesting about this podcast is, uh, is a lot of different perspectives. So, you know, what would you, what would you want the, uh, most of our, our listeners are church leaders and pastors. Um, so what would you want them to know about, uh, the different roles as far as, as far as what do you think pastors should know about parachurches and what should parachurch ministries know about pastors? Like, can you, you, you've been on both sides of that. So can you break that down a little bit? Yeah. So when I was on church staff, you know, there's always this kind of uh, hesitancy to be open to parachurch ministries because there's this fear of, um, you know, well, let's just be candid, right? Um, there's resources and there's limited resources. And if I have to direct my congregation towards their time, their talent, their their treasure, you know, I'm, I'm going to want them to focus those efforts and energies and resources in, in my church, right? Um, and yet the parachurch oftentimes is seen as this competing force. But what we, we've tried to do and what we are doing with Mina Collective is we're actually equipping the church. So one of the things that I discovered when I was at uh, First Baptist Dallas as Minister of Stewardship and Generosity was, you know, we had a problem where folks just weren't giving. I mean, they just weren't giving. There's no way around it. They, they were giving um, a little bit, but overall giving in the church was not where it should be, not what you would expect. So the folks that are generous, amazing, absolutely above and beyond, you know, uh, beautiful church, beautiful facilities, amazing uh, television ministry and what they're doing there. But that was really being carried by a very small percent of the population of the church. The rest of the folks were just kind of showing up. And so what we realized was, you know what? People give when they see the church have a tremendous impact. And one of the things that a lot of parachurches can do is actually help the church to see the impact that their giving can actually have or their partnership can actually have. And so, you know, when we we provide real impact stories for churches and we say, look, this is the impact that church you're having because of your generosity, because of your missions giving. Look at the tremendous impact and difference, you know, First Baptist Church, you know, whatever is having because of your gift. And so we actually kind of take a step back and we, we don't actually kind of push forward our own brand when we deal with churches. We let the church shine and we let the church be the hero and we let the church really take its role as the facilitator of a tremendous wave of generosity and impact. And that, that becomes a blessing for the church. And so I think that's, that's one of the things that I would, if I would encourage pastors, it's, you know, know that some parachurches can be your biggest blessing and can help you solve that big problem of how, how do I explain to my congregation that we are really making a difference in the world? Cause I think the biggest fear for pastors, and if we're honest, I think this is the real challenge, right? If, if pastors are really honest and, and were to ask, if my church were to go away tomorrow, would the city be better off or worse off? Mm. And unfortunately, I think for, for a lot of churches, if they were honest, they'd have to say, city honestly wouldn't be impacted if we were gone. You know, in fact, they may have more parking or a public park or, you know, a new amphitheater or whatever, right? Um, 
But I think that's a, that's a, if we're really to be honest with ourselves as leaders, we have to ask ourselves that question. Are we the kind of church that's making a difference in the life of our community and in our city? Or are we just occupying space and, and having a good social gathering on a Sunday morning? You know, uh, these of uh, uh, these times that we're in right now are, of course, unprecedented times with COVID nineteen, and um, you know, a lot of churches are doing some real reflecting uh, at mm-hmm. this moment in time because they're thinking about, oh, in many cases, we have to be. We don't even have an option. We we, we are going to be closed for you know however however long the the foreseeable future. So I'm sure that a lot of them are also going to be processing their budgets <laughs> um, <laughs> as well yeah. as other things. So I, I want to encourage those listening um, to respond with vision uh, and respond with by asking yourself that question. If right now uh, our church were to go away, because some churches are going to face that, are, are we yeah. going to, are we going to be here or not? Um if they if if you went away, would you be would your community miss you, or not? And so, or or, or nobody's going to even skip a beat. Um, that should be, I think, a good litmus test on how you're responding right now to this current crisis. That's a good word. Well, and you know, I've, 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 there's a church I've been working with for a couple of years, and I've been encouraging them. Look, you guys need to really think about having an online service, have online giving, have online you know, uh, worship experiences, whatever you want to call it. Right. But take, take your service and go online, create opportunities for people to give online. And, you know, for the past two years, there's been just a lot of just kind of, okay, thanks. We'll take it under advisement. Well, Friday, when the governor here decides to shut down all gatherings over 10 people, all of a sudden I have a panic call from leadership of this one church saying, can you get us an online giving account and can we set up an online service? (laughs) And I'm like, you know, yes, but this would have been great if we had actually been prudent in our preparation two years ago when I was telling you we should do that. Right. So let's go ahead and get it done. But I think this is a new territory. I've been working with Jay Cranda from Saddleback church and Neil Smith from social media, that church. And together we're, we're almost done with a practical guidebook, a really a theological and a practical how-to for digital churches. And a lot of that sparred with what we're doing in the Middle East because what, what Mina Collective is supporting in countries like Jordan and, and Egypt and Lebanon is a new wave of digital churches because for the Middle East, if you're Muslim and you come to faith in Christ through television or radio, you're, you have Muslim on your ID card. So in countries like Egypt, where the military is literally camped outside of every church, checking IDs of people who walk in, unless you were born into a Christian family, you're not getting into that church. So where are you to get baptized, married, buried, discipled, educated? Where are you to receive communion? And so it's creating this wave of opportunity to explore what does church actually look like in the digital age? And you know, for some detractors in America, it's like, well, it's just church for the lazy. But actually in the Middle East, what we're seeing is it's the only option that a whole new generation of believers who are coming to faith have because of their Islamic background. So, you know, it's new waves of what's happening in church. And so to be kind of a part of that in the Middle East and helping to facilitate and set up um, churches literally all over the the 22 countries we serve, um, that's been one of the greatest joys of, of what we've seen 
And now we're beginning to take those lessons and help churches here in America apply those. Well, I know we have some questions to get to, but before we do, I mean, what a great resource that that sounds like you're putting together. Would you mind sharing just like two to three highlights that you think would benefit pastors who are, man, they're just wrestling right now. What does this look like for us? How do, how do we become a digital church? Can you just kind of speak into that with kind of some of the things that you've been processing with those other leaders? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things is simply use the tools that you have at your disposal. Facebook Live is a wonderful tool. Zoom is a wonderful tool. Um, use use what you already have and begin there. You know, people think they have to go out and and buy, you know, a huge set from Sony, which would be great to do because they're great cameras. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, you don't have to have the full tilt studio to start with. Start with what you have. The main thing is this, and especially in a time like this, your congregation pastors, they need to see you. They need to hear you. They don't just need to get the email. They don't just need to see the, the pithy Facebook, you know, meme. They really need to see and hear you. This is where ministry really hits the road and where we stand. We're facing for the first time, I mean, think about this, for the first time in our country's history, we most likely will not be able to gather as a church to celebrate Easter. That's profound. Very and much so, yeah. People are scared. People are worried from all spectrums, right? Uh, from the, the, you know, conspiracy theorist all the way to the kids who grew up reading the Tim LaHaye novels, right? And everybody in between. Um, they need to see you. They need to hear you. And so use the tools that you have. That's number one. Number two, I would say is that, you know, when we think about digital church, it's going to, it's going to expand some of our boundaries, particularly when we talk about ordinances or um, sacraments. And so for, you know, many of our evangelical or Baptist churches in the Middle East, they have no problem saying, look, I'll, I'll lead communion and you grab bread and, and juice or bread and wine at home. And, and as I, you know, go through the elements, you take it home with us in, in, in unity. For a lot of folks here in, in America, that's a big stretch. That's a huge stretch. Um, you know, we have a, a dear friend of mine who's an Anglican pastor who uh, works in Iran. And we had a 75-year-old man call him and genuinely gave his life to Christ, wants to know the Lord, knows that he is at risk of dying, not just because of Corona, but because of his age and because of, you know, life is, is fleeting, but he desperately wanted to be baptized. But in the Anglican tradition, you have to bless the water. And then there's this whole beautiful service around baptism, right? A lot quicker than kind of our three points, dunk them and they're out and move on to the orchestra. Right? <laughs> um, <coughs> so um, what did he do? Well, he gathered uh, his grandson, his grandson pulled up Skype, and this Anglican pastor in England over Skype gave the whole baptismal service and the grandson got to baptize his granddad. And we would consider that a completely valid baptism. But even within the Anglican church, there are some who would say that, whoa, hold on, that's not really valid because the priest wasn't there to actually touch the water. And so what it's bringing a lot of challenges, and this is where, you know, in this guidebook, we really kind of lay out some, some detailed thinking particularly when it comes to the sacraments or the ordinances, it's not us that does it, right? It's, it's the Holy Spirit. So first of all, God is omnipresent. There's nowhere in the world God isn't there. And secondly, if you do believe in a sacramental theology, it's the person and work of the Holy Spirit doing the actions, doing the blessings, doing the, the impartation. It's not us. And so that changes the perspective. So, you know, it's, it's the person and work of the Holy Spirit and it's the fact that God is everywhere. Um, there's nowhere in the world he's not. 
And so when we look at those two things, that begins to shape our own thinking about, well, can we do baptism? Can we do communion online? Um, now, just because we can doesn't mean we should. That's a whole nother discussion. Um, and we address that also. So those are just some of the things that I would, I would say, you know, would be really practical. Use what you have, think through it and, you know, use your tradition um, to the best of your ability. And then, you know, who knows, we may see God do something completely new. Um, but the growth of this church is, is happening and we want to be able to be there to help encourage and foster that any way we can. So uh, we recorded several trainings both last week and then uh, this week. And I, what's really funny is um, that dropped. This is being recorded on March 20th. Um, but last week we had a kind of a, a pandemic training in your church and put out sample policies and, you know, templates and checklists and, and all this really practical stuff. And it really picked up because people weren't talking about the practical things yet. And I actually had a call from, oh, I can't remember the newspaper. Uh, it was a New York, but not the Times. But th this reporter wanted to know if, um, I guess because uh, we were like the first thing that popped up when you Googled uh, church pandemic training or whatever. She, she wanted to know uh, about... Uh, sanitation of baptismal water <laughs> and if that was Leech. a problem and all this stuff, I was like I have no idea that's a lot outside I, my expertise <laughs> yes I curate resources I can talk about social pretty 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 well um, I mean but, I have known churches to chlorinate or to put bleach in the water yeah and uh, and that's you know that's that's true you got to think about those kind of things especially right uh, now well, you know, um, the, the difficulty is with the hoarding right now of, of like hand sanitation. Oh my right? goodness. So like, you know, we're oh. washed in the blood of the lamb, but not hand sanitizer. That's true. So uh, one of the things that I think is beautiful about this particular point in time in history, we have, we have something that wouldn't be available to us even 20, 30 years ago. And that is our yeah. people are already digitally connected. So in, you know, recording the training that we did, I just said, hey, if a church is a mid-sized to larger church, they probably already have an online service and guys that know how to do it. Um, if, if it's a smaller church or a church that hasn't come on yet, it really is. First, you ask yourself, is this a temporary thing or a long-term thing? Um, but for most, it's going to be Facebook Live. And Facebook Live is really easy to do. You can yeah. schedule it in, uh, I think it was six steps. I mean, it's so amazingly easy. Yeah. Even pastoral care. If you think about digital pastoral care, um, you know, the word pastoral care, we think of, we automatically think of personal visitation, you know, in it in the flesh. However, because we think of homes, uh, hospitals, nursing homes, that kind of a thing. And, and I totally get that. But at the same time, you, when you think that because you're usually visiting somebody where they are. Um, but Nielsen would tell you where they are is on their phone that uh, people my age, at least look at my demographic looks at their phone over 150 times a day. Wow. And so, Absolutely. Yeah. Just go for it. You may want to pick a, um, a particular, uh, I don't know, a particular social media platform for different ages that, you know, you're, you're kind of targeting. Uh, just be aware of that. However, 
pretty much everybody, like it or not, uh, has a Facebook account. Even your older people <laughs> because of the grandkids oh, and yeah. great-grandkids. So it's a beautiful time to be able to do that. Well, and even consider using the Facebook groups functionality, right? So take your Sunday school classes into Facebook groups. Use those those opportunities and those technologies that um, are there. And church, this is also a great opportunity, pastors, to actually uh, onboard and recruit that army of digital natives that are in your church that have been just honestly sitting there thinking, do I even belong here? What, what is my role? What, what is my place to serve? Um, you know, and it's like, well, you can be a greeter or, you know, serve coffee, but actually the, you have this tremendous gift of people who have been wired as digital natives. They know this like the back of their hand. What a tremendous opportunity to recruit those folks in your church and empower them to actually, at this moment in history, be a tremendous blessing to your body and to the body of Christ globally uh, through through just using their everyday knowledge and skill set to the glory of God. You know, uh, a, uh, a a pastor here locally, uh, Kevin Queen from Crosspoint, he's been on the podcast a time or two. And, you know, we texted a little bit over the last uh, month or so. And then we had seven tornadoes roll through Nashville in one in, in one night. I think it was seven. Um, and it just, I mean, the next day, you know, seeing him standing in the shell of of his church, yep. it was pretty devastating. Um, then going out, uh, particularly, I went out to Mount Juliet with uh, with a couple of the guys from here. <laughs> Basically, it was like all Lifeways directors <laughs> were running chainsaws, <laughs> and I'm like filming, and I'm going, "There's the guy we're marketing. There's the guy That's basically awesome. running the show. Here's the CFO." Um, but but anyway, I say all that to say what was uh, what was fascinating to me is running into person after person that was from Crosspoint, hmm. and uh, I just texted him and said, you know, your your church building may be a, a mess, but you have a beautiful beautiful church, and I'm seeing it right now, yeah. and I think that this is an opportunity for all of our churches to step back and say. We cannot meet together. We cannot, you know, be in a building. We're out of our building too now, all of us, yep. almost. Um, but that is just a building. And how is the body going to move forward? And we know that this is a, we hope that it's a, a, a brief temporary thing uh, in our lives, but we also know it's going to change everything forever too. And we just don't know how dramatically. So, uh, you know, God is still on his throne and his church is still his church and he's going to grow it until he comes back. So uh, it, it's a question of what part are we going to take in it? So thank you for creating those resources. Uh, Nils is a friend and Cranda is people that you don't know this guy, but he is a genius. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Nils is as well. I'll give that to Nils. Um, but... <laughs> And and uh, Justin, by just way of the people that we both know, I cannot wait to meet you in person. And hopefully, Likewise. hopefully it's uh, a year from now in some far off place, and we'll make sure Nils is there to keep us out of jail. <laughs> <laughs> All right, absolutely. Sorry, uh, this podcast completely turned. We don't. We haven't even gotten to our first question, Chandler. We have How not. many minutes are we at? Twenty three. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> We're going to have to Part drop two. this, by the way, not out of the schedule. This will have to come yeah. in the next week. Yeah. Uh, and, and you said it was you said it was recorded on March 20th. It's March 17th. Okay. So. Why did I say March 20th? I don't know, man. I'm living three days ahead. <laughs> You're already there. <laughs> That's when we're dropping it. Um, all right. All right. All right. Uh, Justin, who are you currently learning from? It's a great question. So um, currently I'm digging into a lot of uh, Thomas Oden, who is a theologian and professor who's focused a lot of time on the early church and it's, it's been for me, you know, of course we work in, in areas of North Africa and something sparked when I was on a recent trip in Tunisia and I was standing in the middle of this uh, Colosseum and this Tunisian believer, she, she reaches down and she grabs a bunch of earth and she says, you know the saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? And I said, yeah, of course. And she grabs my hand and she pours the sand out of her hand into mine and she said, this is the ground they're talking about. This is the amphitheater that they mentioned. This is, this is what, what that, that story relates to. And she says, you know, that's my history as a Tunisian. And I never knew it until Christians told me the history of the church. And it sparked this whole journey of, you know, there is this whole history in the church of North Africa that I think by and large, most, most believers in the West have no idea about. Um, you know, the New Testament being codified at the Council of Carthage, which is modern day Tunisia, uh, walking through Augustine's church and going into where he, the baptistry, where Augustine would baptize believers. And it's still there. You can actually still climb in and go down this. I mean, you wouldn't know it if you didn't know it was there, but there's these stairways that looks like you're going into a hole in the earth and you go descend into darkness. And then there's this beautiful round baptistry and three windows that represent the Trinity. And as the sun would rise, they'd go in early in the morning and they'd worship and the sun would rise and light would shine through those windows, illuminating the baptism water. And Augustine, as, as you would be baptized, when you came up out of the water, the first thing you saw was this stairway leading up back into the, the main church. And there was a window that had light. And so you would walk out of darkness into light, quite literally walking out of darkness into light. And what a, just this beautiful, rich history that was there. And I had no idea any of this was still there, right? Um, most of the church was destroyed and used to build the mosque next door, but the baptistry part is still there. And it's, it's pretty amazing. But Odin uh, writes a number of books on the history of, of the North African church. One of the ones I'm reading through right now is The African Memory of Mark and just a reassessment of early church, you know, what we know of the early church um, because of, um, scholarship that has really, you know, lent credence to the fact that Mark was, um, of course, Jewish, but was part of the, the Jewish community that had lived in Libya for 300 years before Christ. And so there's, he was not just Jewish, but he was, he was fully North African and African. And so there's a lot of that unique history that comes in. So that's been, that's been on the, the spiritual side, on the, on the business side and the, the overall, um, I'm digging in through another uh, round of Blue Ocean Strategy. It's one of my favorite Harvard business books, and just constantly thinking through Blue Oceans and you know what are what are the unexplored opportunities or untapped opportunities that we can drive in the ministry space and the nonprofit space and the philanthropy space. 
And so that's kind of a constant. I, my, my staff gets really frustrated because I'm like, <laughs> hey, I have this great new idea. And they're like, let me guess. Is it a blue ocean idea? I'm like, yes, <laughs> here we go. You know, so. Uh, but yeah, so those are, those are kind of the two things where I'm at right now. Very cool. Well, uh, we do book breakdowns from time to time. Blue Ocean would be a fun one to do hmm. if you'd be interested in coming back on at uh, yeah, at absolutely. some point and doing that. So, I mean, basically what we're doing is breaking down business books for um, for pastors and church leaders. It's a, it's a great, great book for pastors, particularly if you're wanting to innovate in the church and you're in a, in a community that's incredibly crowded, uh, like most, you know, churches are. Yeah. Um, how do you actually stand out in the crowd and what, what differentiates you and your ministry from others? So there's, it's a tremendous opportunity to really think through kind of new innovations. And that's been a tremendously helpful book throughout just my whole time in both ministry and in business. Well, other than blue ocean ideas, <laughs> what is the main point of your emphasis uh, with your leadership team or yourself right now? So, I would say agility has been the biggest, the biggest thing for us is we've, you know, we, we make a plan, work a plan, stick to the plan, but we have to remain agile and flexible. And uh, I'd say the biggest example of this happened when we launched a campaign for end of year giving, starting a giving, giving Tuesday in November. And the campaign was to raise support for Syrian refugees living in Iraq. But because the report or because the, the name Syria was in the giving page, Chase Bank actually shut the entire campaign down and they terminated the giving account. Wow. Um, and so it went through rounds of discussions. It went all the way up to their senior offices and management in, in New York. And uh, they only turned the account back on Christmas Eve. And so we were clear, you know, Iraq is not a sanctioned country. There's nothing wrong with raising funds for ministries in Iraq. We work through the State Department. We work through the Department of Commerce. Like, you know, we've we've got excellent contacts and, and ratings and, and, you know, people know us and we're good. Our partners that we work with that we fund through the Middle East um, have the best ratings possible. And Chase said, we, we don't care. We have the right to determine, you know, what we want to fund and not fund. And so at the end of the day, it's not your account, it's really our account and uh, we can terminate it for any reason. And so that was kind of a big alarm for us. And so, you know, here we are just launching this ministry, just launching the the social media campaigns. And we've, we've, you know, used some of the best and brightest out there to get this thing done and ready. And then it all gets shut down. And so how did we, we had to learn to pivot and adjust very quickly. And we were, we lost the giving season. And so then we start in January with a new uh, giving platform. And, and that's been very helpful. And, you know, we just get off the ground running and then we run into, you know, now here we are with, with this epidemic. So, you know, we just have to be flexible and agile and be willing to adjust and move. And it's, it's driven our social media folks crazy a little bit because we're like, nope, we can't do that. <laughs> right. So, you know, when, when things were going off in Iran and protests were happening, our team had to, to, you know, okay, we had a whole campaign plan for Lebanon and we were promoting refugee relief in Lebanon. And I had to call them and say, guys, we have to jump on the news cycle. I'm sorry. I know you've got Lebanon planned and everything's already scripted and done. I need you all to burn, burn the midnight oil and switch to giving us stories from Iran, contact our partners there and let's get all these stories out that we can. And so literally in 24 hours, we shifted from an entire 30 day planned campaign on Lebanon and created a new 30 day campaign focused on Iran. 
And, you know, good news, we still have Lebanon in the can and it's, it's going out right now. Um, but um, we have to be agile. And I, that's a hard lesson, I think, for a lot of ministries to, to, to do because we have our, you know, five-year plans and our 90-day plans and, <laughs> and being agile is not something we're comfortable with. But in our area, we have to be. Yeah. And I mean, we were just talking about this. I mean, churches being agile. I mean, right now, it's just as you were talking about that one church of saying, hey, we've got two days to figure out how we're streaming a service. So, I mean, right. there there's many churches and leaders listening to this right now, walking through exactly what you're talking about. So very relevant. So what's one or two things other than the spiritual disciplines that you do every day to stay sharp as a leader? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's easy, right? The, the usual, you know, uh, read, pray, all that. Um, but what I find is that my wife and I have a five minute date every morning and every night. And it's five minutes where the kids know, okay, mom and dad are investing in their marriage. Mom and dad are investing in each other. Um, stay out. And, you know, they'll, they'll kind of creep around the corner. Like, are you guys having your five minute date? Yes, we are. Okay, great. And they, they know to walk away. Um, it's the time where my wife and I can just sit down and really just invest in each other. How are you doing? She also works in a ministry in the Middle East. And so we, we both deal with, you know, a lot of stress, a lot of pressures, a lot of just life. And we have good days and bad days and persecutions and church closures and partners that go missing and things that, that just is the reality of working in the region, right? And so we, we have to take that time to just say, okay, how are you? What, how can I pray for you? What's happening in your life? And we homeschool and we do ministry and we both work from home. And so even though it sounds really silly, right? We can go days without having a real conversation. Even though we, we work, literally she's in the office behind me here in the basement and you know we, we homeschool the kids. And, but it is totally possible to go days without that, that real conversation. So I find that helps me a, keep the main thing the main thing. Because if my marriage isn't strong, my ministry won't be strong. Mm. If my home life isn't in balance, my, my work life's not going to be in balance. And so that's the, the, you know, next to the spiritual disciplines, right? And daily prayer and daily reading my scriptures. That's, that's the most important thing I can do is take that time to invest in my wife. And then the other thing I do is I always carve out time um, to, to actually relax. I, I have to decompress at some point. And so whether that's reading a book or it's, uh, you know, sometimes decompression is, is hitting the, the weight machine or it's going to the backyard and, and uh, firing off my bow and arrows and, you know, killing that plastic deer, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, right. I, I have to make time to decompress because I, especially because I work from home and a lot of pastors, you know, they have their office and some, sometimes they don't, sometimes they do work from home. Hmm. Um, Ministry is tough and you can't take the burden of your ministry to your dinner table. Try not to do that. And so I always try to decompress before we go up and we have dinner. That way, when I get to the table, I'm not putting on a fake smile because my kids are so brilliant, man. They see right through it. Hmm. And they'll say, daddy, what's wrong? Mommy, what's wrong? I mean, they know, right? And so um, we don't want to scare them because the stuff that we deal with is kind of scary sometimes. And so we have to really decompress, put on the, the right face. And, and then when I'm up there, I'm all theirs, right? I'm not, I'm not still thinking about 
the 15 things that have to be done for ministry, I'm, I'm able to really focus and give my kids all of me at that moment because they need it. Um, and so that's, yeah, to so decompress, spend time with your spouse and decompress. Those are the two things that I'd recommend. Well, a lot of that kind of leads us into our fourth question, which is what does leadership in your home look like? So you've already answered a few of that, but maybe you could add just a little bit more. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have a, a 100, 100 marriage split. So it's, it's a hundred percent of me, a hundred percent of her. Um, my wife, uh, jokes around a lot. She says that, uh, submission is the most beautiful thing on earth because it means she's ultimately not responsible. <laughs> and she, she's like, no, look, if he screws it up, if our family goes through chaos, it's his fault, right? <laughs> it's not my fault. I, that's the greatest stress relief on earth. Um, but we, we do, we, we work well together. So I actually do the cooking in our home. Mm. My wife does amazing things, but I relax by cooking. I love to cook. So she takes care of the cleaning. Beautiful symbiotic relationship, right? I cook, she cleans. Um, you know, our kids have chores and we're teaching them the responsibilities. And so we have a an Airbnb on the property, not very oh, nice. active right now. Yeah. Uh, but the kids clean the Airbnb and they, you know, they do all the, the housekeeping on, on that space. And, you know, they make a little bit of money and it's teaching them responsibility and, um, you know, they're, they're tithing out of it every week. And so we're, we're beginning to build into that importance of stewarding the resources that God's given us. Um, and then really having to spiritually lead the family in a way that, um, both encourages their growth and provides opportunity for curiosity and questioning. And that's, that's been probably the biggest challenge. Cause you know, I, I grew up, I went, I went to Criswell. I, I, I'm very systematic in my theology and, you know, uh, everything fits nice and neatly in a box. And then, you know, when you're dealing with questions from kids that are really asking tough questions, um, particularly in light of current events, hmm. um, you, you can't just pull out like the, the, you know, the Baptist faith and message or, you know, the catechism <laughs> or this or the other, right? Like it just doesn't work. Um, they want more details and more explanation. And so, um, all right, let's, let's give you some room to ask those tough questions. And then let's, let's go to the word of God together and let's explore that together. Um, you know, not this authoritative approach, but really a, a strong leader shepherd approach. And that's really been kind of the, the way that we, we typically have uh, structured our house and the way I, I like to lead our family. Good deal. On this podcast, we equip our listeners with the absolute best resources to help their churches thrive. So if you're looking at launching a thriving church in a rented venue or perhaps a new one that you own, I would encourage you to check out the team at Portable Church. Portable Church Industries equips churches meeting in alternative venues with total solutions so that you can launch strong, be reproductive, and thrive in your community. For over 25 years, they've partnered with church planters and multi-site leaders, mastering creative, intelligent, and effective portable church solutions so that you and your team can stay focused on the thing that really matters, and that's building disciples. If you want to see what this looks like, visit portablechurch.com slash All right, I'm going to ask the last question, but it won't be the last question, and that is... Uh, <laughs> 
What would you tell your 20-year-old self about preparing to lead or, or advice would you give your 20-year-old self? I would say hang on and expect the unexpected. Yeah, hang on and expect the unexpected. At, at 20, um, I was uh, serving in a church in Texas and I was, uh, was the, I guess it's like associate minister for evangelism in college. And it was a church um, called Metro Church in Garland, Texas with uh, Dr. Scott Camp and uh, Guy Schaefer, who is now the chief of staff at First Dallas. And, you know, my first week there, we had a tremendous bus, cr bus crash and we actually lost uh, several of our youth uh, who died in that bus crash. And so my first week of full-time ministry was burying these kids and then wow. having to work with, um, with the families and just the, the, the fallout of that, that the church went through. Um, that was my introduction to ministry. And so it, you know, I, it really did shake me. And then the next year I go to Germany and, um, you know, worked with the IMB and, and fell in love with Europe, but really fell in love with reaching Muslims in Europe and then came back. And then I went back to Europe and um, we helped pastor a Farsi church in, in Vienna, Austria, that today, um, you know, has two campuses and over 500 Iranian believers who are worshiping every week in Austria. Um, one of the largest churches in the country is actually a Baptist church made up of Austrian and Afghani believers. And so just a beautiful, beautiful ministry. Um, and then I came back and got into media and, you know, like my, like you said earlier in the beginning of the podcast, you know, my journey has taken so many different twists and turns. And yet when I look back at it, I can see kind of this scarlet thread all throughout where it's very clear, Oh Lord. Okay. That is you. Um, and things make sense. And even what I'm doing now with Mina, the relationships and the, the partners that we have, those are all partnerships and relationships that have been forged through different seasons, whether it was, you know, working as the head of TV and film for the Museum of the Bible or at Christian Broadcasting Network or, um, you know, at First Baptist Dallas or um, even in the television industry um, when we launched this uh, television network. Um, I can see God's hand through every single step of the way. And uh, so I would just say, hold on and expect the unexpected. Uh, one of the things that I think is uh, is interesting about your story, and I think we've had this um, conversation privately, so if you don't want to have it publicly, we can cancel that. Um, but the, the interesting thing to me is, you know, you've you've served uh, and and pastored in Baptist churches, and you yeah. currently belong to an Anglican church, which yes. I think is very interesting. Uh, what would you say you appreciate most about, um, Baptistness having now being in an Anglican church? And then what would you say you appreciate? Like, like play both sides of that for me. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, to, to a lot of my Baptist friends, I joke, just consider me kind of a NAM missionary to the Anglican church. And, uh, <laughs> you know, awesome. so, like if it makes you feel better, just think of me as a NAM missionary. <laughs> um, but no, the reality is like, I, I am so thankful to God that 
the the Baptist church taught me a, a passion for the word of God, you know, the inerrant infallible word of God, truth without any measure of error, right? Um, my time at Criswell, if, if Criswell does nothing uh, but just prepare preachers to learn how to preach, you know, that was my my favorite takeaway from my time at, at Criswell was just to learn just how to rightly handle the word of God, um, to preach with boldness and not not fear, not timidity. Um, you know, there's a lot of times where we learned, you know, you may preach the last sermon on your first Sunday at that church if you do it right. Hopefully, you know, you've you preached with conviction and, and belief and um, and you hear from the Lord and you preach the word that needs to be preached, not that that people want to hear. Um, and so I appreciate that. I appreciate the, the passion for missions. I'm an, I'm an ardent supporter. Uh, our ministry is proud to support the IMB. We're proud to stand with uh, the IMB on, in their work in the region that we, we love and we serve. Um, and, you know, I get the joy of being an advocate for the IMB, even though I'm no longer an active Southern Baptist. Um, you know, so there, there is that, that passion and zeal for missions and for the word of God and for preaching uh, the word. So I would say those are things that I'm, I'm, I love about my, my Baptist heritage. And it's something that I've, I've always uh, still passed on to our kids. I mean, our kids were raised in the Baptist church. And so they, they remember that. Now, the Anglican church has taught me a couple of things. Um, the first is the deep love of church history. I've always had a love for church history. And, you know, to know that we're kind of a part of a church that really can trace roots way, way, way back. I mean, even, you know, if you look at the the historical kind of nerdiness of Anglicanism, it, you know, there's the argument that um, the Anglican church has been there since the really the second century. Uh, the, the Ecclesia Anglicana, the church of England, the old Roman province, where Christianity first reached there in the second century. And so there's this long tradition within the Anglican church that predates and then um, the, the Synod of Whitby where bishops were gathered around the country and, and went into the Catholic church. And then the Reformation came and then they decided to no longer validate the Synod of Whitby. And so they invalidated the Synod of Whitby and then just went back to being the Church of England, the Church Ecclesia Anglicana. Um, but for Anglicans, it's really the middle way. Um, it's a church that is uh, fully embracing the gifts of the Holy Spirit and yet fully orthodox in its theology. It's fully evangelical in its presence and witness. Um, and yet it's also apostolic in its form and structure. And so, you know, if you kind of take those four points of the compass and right in the middle is the Anglican church. And so that's been something that has just been a beautiful, um, beautiful piece for us and for our family to see and to experience, to know that, you know, when we say, um, the liturgy together as a family on Sunday, it's not just us and our church, but we're really saying that that same prayers with Christians from all over the world, um, you know, which is Anglicanism as an ism is the third largest uh, Christian denomination in the world. And so that's been really interesting. Um, it's also been a challenge in a lot of ways too, because I am still very Baptist. And so they're like, you know, were, were you, were you, were you a Baptist? You know, they kind of ask me whenever I read scripture or speak and I'm like, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, so like they, they can tell and it's, it is different, but actually a lot of the leaders within the Anglican church are, are former Southern Baptists. Foley Beach, who's the archbishop of the Anglican church in North America, uh, was a Southern Baptist preacher. So, um, there's quite a number of guys that I know that I went to Grizzle with that are now Anglican. So it's this, it's been this interesting shift, um, over time, but, 
um, you know, the history, the tradition. We also have something called the daily office, which is uh, prayers that are said morning, evening, and night. And there's scripture reading that accompanies that. And if you pray the daily office daily, in the course of a year, you'll read the Psalms. Um, you'll read the Psalms essentially uh, every 90 days. You'll read the Proverbs every month. You'll read the New Testament twice in the year and the Old Testament once in a year. So it's like this really deep, immersive Bible reading plan, but it takes about 15 minutes a day. And I, just to be honest, I find even as a Anglican who's not preaching frequently, just going through the daily office, I find I read more scripture than I did even when I was preparing sermons in the Baptist church, just because of the variety, the, the way that the, the prayers are structured and the scripture reading structured. So it's different. I wouldn't say it's better. I would just say it's different. And uh, for our family, it's, it's, uh, has really fed our, our soul and our journey. Um, but it's not been for us anything antagonistic or negative. It's just been, what you know, ultimately we really feel like the Lord has, has been calling us to. And it is different because, you know, whereas a lot of Baptist churches have online services, online church is really different in the Anglican church. They don't do it <laughs> typically. And so um, really I, I can see where the Lord's kind of brought us here as kind of my, they call curacy, my, my church office essentially is to focus on digital ecclesiology. And so this is totally new territory for the Anglicans. And so uh, it's a joy to get to work with some amazing leaders and people from around the world who are asking what does a digital expression of Anglicanism look like? And to be able to help form that has really been an exciting part of our, of our journey in ministry. Good deal. Well, that's what I was most curious about um, because what I personally, uh, everybody that listens to this podcast knows we work with the Anglican church uh, heavily in Australia pipeline. Um, but, but, uh, what I appreciate definitely the reason why I brought up pipeline is the scope and sequence. (laughs) We're big scope and sequence people. We're big map, not a menu people. And so what, what, uh, draws my curiosity to the Anglican church is that idea of liturgy. (laughs) And so I love that you kind of brought that out, um, as one of the biggest, of positive things because if you think about the 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 times in which we live it's it's interesting that a lot of our churches uh due to the church growth movement and other things like we've gotten really really large and we offer people lots and lots of options right however sometimes that can be distracting from the the main thing and making sure that if a person comes to know Christ uh, in our church that, you know, 10 years down the road, they're not still on milk. They're, 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 they've moved along and they've progressed and they have a good understanding of theology and they have read the, the Bible, not just the seven, our seven favorite books that, that we've preached through. So I love, right. love, love that uh, element of, of liturgy. Well, and I mean, make no mistake, Baptist churches have liturgy too. We just don't call it liturgy, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, the one thing I get, well, you know, don't you, don't you get tired of saying those prayers or does it, does it really mean anything? Well, that, that's to the individual person, but how many times, you know, when we hear, you know, every head bowed, every eye closed, right? Do we secretly pull up Facebook and start checking our, our phones or think, you know, anything else other than as a concerned Christian, you know, I should be at that moment praying for the non-believer who's sitting in church or watching on television or listening on radio who, you know, Lord, would you please spark, you know, 
uh, a conviction in their heart and let them turn to you, let them come to you, right? Like that's what we should be thinking as, as believers during that invitation moment or, you know, self-examining our own heart and life, right? Um, but we have our own liturgy. We just don't call it that. But, you know, we have the same motions and order of service and everything. Um, it's there. But I, I just, you know, the other thing I would add to is just the, the, the weekly communion. Um, that is always such a special time for our family. And um, that that reminder of we are part of the body of Christ globally. We are part of the, of, of the family of God. And yet at the same time, let's never forget the sacrifice that was that was given for us. And What's beautiful about that too is growing up, you probably did that once a quarter. And right. whenever you did it, it was like super serious. Like if I... Oh, yeah. I need to confess everything, <laughs> everything. Yeah. I mean, I can't forget anything. And, I, and this is so serious. And and right now, I could just almost have to completely shut my brain off so I won't sin before I drink this and eat it. <laughs> That's right. how I remember growing up. So, uh, and for a brief period of time uh, during seminary, I went to a, a church that did communion every every week. And so... Man, that was, I think that's why I treasured that so much is because the foundation that was laid to me uh, in in smaller Baptist churches, and we do this once a quarter and the seriousness of it, uh, yeah. and now doing that weekly, that that kept me. Well, and, and the way we view, you know, the Eucharist and communion is, is, a, is a bit different, you know, and, and I actually had a Baptist friend tell me like, you know, you're not really Baptist when you think of that. And I said, what do you mean? And I said, well, like, you, you know, you, you, don't, you don't believe in transubstantiation. And I said, no, of course not. And they said, but, but you, you really actually, it seems like you think that there's like grace or, or peace given when you receive communion. And I'm like, well, yeah, I absolutely believe that. I, I feel better. I feel more at peace after receiving communion. I feel like um, the Lord is happy with me. I feel like, I feel his joy when I take communion and he goes, I've never experienced that. I have no idea what that feels like to me. It's just crackers and grape juice. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that for me, that was like, well, maybe, maybe I am thinking about this differently, but to me, that's, that's at least how I feel. And I, I think that's scriptural. I think you can see the, there's some deep roots in there that, um, you know, while it is, it represents the body and blood of Christ. It, it is, uh, there is also a, a a measure of grace and joy and peace given um, by the Lord and by the Holy Spirit when we do receive. And so why, why wouldn't we want to receive that every week? Um, right. You know, anyways, is that, deal. yeah. Well, Justin, thanks so much for being on with us today and uh, listeners. Thanks for listening and walking through a little bit of a rabbit trail here and there, but hopefully you benefited as much as Chandler and I did from that. Uh, so please hop on to iTunes and leave us a rating review and check out the MENA initiative. No, collective. Mina That's collective. the second time. <laughs> the MENA collective. Uh, and, and see how you might uh, come alongside them and invest in their work. And pastors, if you are interested in uh, knowing how we can help show impact for your church, please reach out to us and let us know. We'd love to have a chat with you. See ya.